All right, we are in First Thessalonians chapter 4 this week. If you don't have a Bible, they're back there on the bar. And I think it's page 640. I finally looked it up. It's page 640. Um, so I hope that helps. Um, we have been going through here, and a lot of it has kind of been uh, intro recap. I don't want to make little of what we've already read. But uh, what Paul has been saying so far through the book of Thessalonians has been kind of... Um, recapping his ministry there in Thessalonica and talking about uh, the circumstances that led to his departure. And he's been trying to reassure them about his ministry, who he is, uh, what Jesus has said to them, and just kind of encourage them. And to let them know that they are deeply loved, deeply valued by him and by the church. And, and he's just been trying to push them forward and to let them know that they don't need to give up. They don't need to buckle under the weight of this persecution that they're now facing because the church is being persecuted at this time and he knows that and he says this is you don't need to give up and he's just trying to encourage them so through the first three chapters it's a lot of kind of recap encouragement and beginning in chapter four where we're going to start today he begins to uh, give them a little bit more exhortation so it's less recap and more uh, more tr- trying to give them specific instructions as to what they need to do as a church. So we're going to read uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 today. So I'm going to go ahead and start. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this Disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It sounds like he's following up from something that he already told them when he was there in his ministry to them, uh, when, when they established the church. Because he says there, uh, kind of towards the end, that they had already told them beforehand and solemnly warned them in verse 6. So he's, he's kind of following up on this. And right there at the beginning in verse 1 and 2... He makes it sound like they're, on the whole, doing a pretty good job. He, he says, you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God. Just as you are doing, we want to encourage you that you do that more and more. So again, I find, again, I find it interesting, and probably just this being my role up here um, as a pastor, um, I see this and I think, you know, oftentimes we, we want to encourage people or, or challenge them when things are, are going wrong. Um, but he's saying right here at the front that you ought to walk and to please God. And you are doing that, but I want you to do that more and more. So we have like this saying, like the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And whenever people are like managing things, or even I think it applies in church too, where when things are going wrong, you, you go and address that area. But when things are going right, you kind of have the tendency to sit back and say, okay, that's going well. I'm not going to worry about that. But that's not really Paul's mentality here. He's looking at them and he's saying, listen, you guys are doing a good job, but I want to I tell you to keep doing a good job. I want to focus on you and, and tell you that 
this is worthwhile. Don't, don't let up on this because this is important. It's serious. And the thing that he gets into right here, talking about sexual immorality, I was just thinking, like I've preached on this before, and, and I would just begin to think how, how much I'm starting to see as we preach through more and more. I'm thinking how many of these things are kind of just all throughout the New Testament. And sexual immorality is talked about specifically and explicitly. It's, it's spoken against in just about every book of the New Testament. It's interesting. It's a big issue. And I think that we feel like maybe this is something that has become a big issue lately in our culture. Like you think back. 60, 70 years, and it didn't seem like it was as prevalent. And, and maybe that's just me thinking, being kind of naive about history and, and kind of thinking that things have gotten worse. But I think that you look around culture and you definitely see that this, this is a major issue that he's talking about. And it's not just specific to, to our culture. It's something that just everybody struggles with. And I think that we know that people in our church, we've had, to, we've had to address this issue, and we still address this issue. The fact that uh, we have this guys group that meets on four, four on every other Sunday, um, it's focused on dealing with this kind of issue, sexual immorality. Um, and he says that on the whole, you guys, are, you guys are doing good as a church, but I want to encourage you to do more and more. The fact that he's bringing this up, though, some people think that maybe, he, maybe he's aware that there are one or two individuals inside of this church who are struggling with sexual immorality. They're definitely in a sexually active culture. Rome back then was not too dissimilar from what we have today, I don't think. Um, our culture is hyper-sexualized, um, but so was theirs. So I think that there's a little bit more in common than, than maybe we, we might initially think. Um, they lived in a hypersexualized culture where it was okay to do whatever you wanted to for the most part. Uh, adultery was kind of frowned upon, but other than that, if you had mutual consent, then they were cool. And that's the way our culture kind of looks at it. And that's a very worldly kind of cultural perspective that is around us, that was around them. So he's, he's trying to encourage them because he knows that this is a very real, very present thing. People are struggling with this. And he has pretty serious things to say about it. Um, this, is, this is one of the... I, I, I kind of glanced through all the New Testament references to sexual immorality, and this was one of the more... I don't know. Uh, one of the more serious warnings, I suppose, that it gives um, out of all of its references that it has because it talks about sexual immorality in relation to God. It's not just something that, that we do to ourselves or to one other person, but it's, it's something that, that is, in a way, it demonstrates where we are with God. And, and that's kind of the way that he sets it up here in these few verses. And he treats it as a very serious thing. And I think that we, we need to see it as a very serious thing. And I, it's hard to do that when you think that this is something that is it's just between you and some other person, or just, just you, struggling with lust. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't put it in those categories at all. He says that this is much bigger than that. And, and we need to see it that way. Um, there's a couple of interesting things in here that I'm going to get to before I get into uh, bigger picture stuff. Because you might have noticed, if you were looking down um, in verse 4 there, when he says that each of you... Uh, each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Does anybody have like a little note there that uh, says that that could be rendered another way? 
Like, it seems to be a drastically different way. Um, I have a little note down here that says, right after the word body, it's got a little number four. And if you look down in the footnotes there, it says, or how to take a wife for himself. That seems like a drastically different reading of that line. Um, and, and what are we to think of something like that? Because that's like changing the whole sentence, it seems like. Um, I, I want to address stuff like this so that we kind of have an idea of how to look at these sorts of things. It's relevant. I don't want you to think, well, those, those are, like, is the Bible double-minded on this? Um, apparently, the Greek that's there is a little bit ambiguous, and it could be interpreted a couple different ways. And so people look at that and they say, well, maybe this way is more likely, maybe that way is more likely. And in the stuff that I looked at, it seemed like everybody said, it's hard to say absolutely which direction he was leaning on this, though you can find parallel truths in other parts of the Bible. So it seems like when we compare this to other verses, even in Paul, it seems like you could interpret this multiple ways. So he says there, you ought to know how to control your own body. I think that we would say that that is true. Like that is, that is commended in multiple areas. Uh, through the Spirit talks about self-control. Uh, there's, there's lots of verses um, that reference having control over oneself. So that makes sense that it's, it doesn't seem crazy to think you could interpret it that way. But then this other one, how to take a wife for himself, that kind of sounds like 1 Corinthians 7, 2, where he's talking about uh, if any of you burns with passion, then you ought to be married. He's making a case for singleness. And he's saying, I wish that everybody were as I am, single, and, and just serving God. And, but within that, he says, though, but I realize some of you, you have this desire uh, and, and I don't want to say that you need to just sit on that uh, you do have the freedom to take a wife and if this is something that is, is in your heart it's, it's something that it's a God given desire then you ought to take a wife so that rendering is kind of pointing towards that kind of idea like if, if this is something that you struggle with then you ought to know how to take a wife for yourself. It's an interesting kind of reading there. Um, we're not going to go into like, I'm not going to spend all my time assessing the, the differences between these, these different interpretations, but I did just want to let you know that that's there. And I think that they're, they're equally valid. Uh, somebody else pointed to 2 Timothy 2.21, and I'll have to look at this one because I don't have it memorized as much. 2 Timothy 2.21 and 22. And said that it, it seems like it's, it's, it's saying the same sort of thing that Paul is saying to Timothy here. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So he, uh, that kind of is the idea that you are just going to refrain from... From partaking or, or satisfying outside of God's intent your sexual desires. All of those I think are equally valid. It's, it's worth looking at all those and kind of critically thinking about them. But that's, I don't want to just get stuck in that. Um, he says that the will of God is our sanctification. Verse 3 there. And I feel like this is the point. Like this is the big point. We're going to talk about more specifically how uh, sexual immorality relates to this. But this is the point that he's trying to get at. 
when he, when he starts exhorting them, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. The, the big goal here is that we would be sanctified. That's a big word. That's a Bible word. Um, does somebody, can somebody kind of describe what sanctification means? Feel free to say it out loud. Yes, exactly. Good job, Tim. Uh, extra sloppy Joe for you at lunch. Just kidding. No, that didn't go over well. Uh, <laughs> so, the process of God making you more like Himself. So, He said through Thessalonians already in this letter to this church, He has talked about them being called people who are called and. I didn't write down the references for this one. But he's made a couple of statements to this effect earlier on in the book. They have been called out of the world by God to be separated to God. And that's the idea. And so he says, the will of God for you is that you be sanctified. And so... Kind of with sanctification, you get this idea of holiness, which he's also talking about in here. That we be holy. The idea here is that you're set apart. That, that you're different from the world. That you don't, you don't call yourself a Christian and yet do everything that the world does. And, and live according to the way that they think we ought to live. He says that you are to be separate. And that you are to be holy. Holiness is living according to God's moral standards, not the world's. That's kind of a, maybe it's me paraphrasing. I don't, I don't know if you'd find that definition. I didn't borrow that from anybody else. Um, but holiness is, is living according to God's moral standards and not the world's. That's the way we can kind of think about it. God has things to say about our sexuality in particular. He has, lo- he has lots of things to say about everything. Um, but what we're addressing here is the sexual immorality. And, and this relates to our holiness. Because for us, living in the world, we have two different presentations of what sexuality looks like. We have the worlds, which we are very familiar with. You can't turn on a television, you can't go to the grocery store, you can't go anywhere without kind of running into this idea of what the world's perspective is on sexuality. Um, and then we have God's, which is very different, which is presented in the Bible for us. And, and they are stark contrast, uh, in stark contrast with one another. Um, but God has something to say about this because he created us. And when he created us, he didn't accidentally make you a sexual being. Like... Every part of every bit of you was thought out by God. Nothing is there on accident. You didn't get that pinky toe just to kind of even the foot out. Like, it's the, it provides balance. Like, if you lose any part of yourself, then it's noticeable in some way. It contributes to how your body functions. So God made you, and he made you with great intent, and he made everything good. Adam and Eve were sexual beings before the fall, before anything bad had ever happened. And so God, when he did that, that wasn't some, that wasn't some kind of accident. It was something that God did with great intent. 
And when he, when he created people, that was like making a statement. That was like saying, this is how I've intended for things to be. And that's the way that it, it worked. But when, when Adam and Eve sinned, and they, it's by eating of the tree and by rebelling against God, it said they knew evil. And so now our hearts devise like all these different kinds of ways to pretty much do whatever we want to do outside of what God had intended. So part of holiness involves sexuality because you're, you're going to go one way or the other, God's way or the world's way, and God has a standard that he's created that is an expression of what he intends for the world to be like. And, and so it's, it's a serious thing for us. And he talks about... Um, in verse 4 there, when he says that each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor. Um, my New Testament professor um, kind of, uh, I want to say illuminated. He, he spoke on this, this concept that's in the New Testament that we don't really think about that much. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with like honor-shame cultures. Um, I'm pointing at you because of China. Uh, this is a lot more, he's been to China. Um, this is much more prevalent in East Asia. Uh, particularly, and it was actually something that was present back then in, in Rome. It's like this kind of currency, like a social currency, that in order to be honorable, in order to be considered someone who contributes to society, who has some kind of standing, um, you have to essentially get honor from somebody else who has it. That's kind of the idea. And that might be kind of, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on this, um, but that's kind of like a really basic way of thinking about it. And, and so for, for us, when he's talking about honor here, that also implies this kind of relationship. Like somebody who has honor deserves honor. Like the rest of society around them recognizes that they deserve some sort of honor. That they ought to be looked upon with respect. That they ought to be treated respectfully. And that they are owed this honor. So that when you come into their presence, you know your place and you attribute honor to them. And, and the hope is that in doing that, in, in, in supporting them, they would then grant you honor by being in their presence. By, by essentially allowing you to be around, by, by offering things to you. Um, this is a really kind of condensed way to look at this. Um, but it's interesting. I just, now, after my New Testament professor kind of looked at this and he pointed at how this plays out in Rome, the book of Romans, it's interesting now to see this, this here, this word honor. Because when he says that inside of this culture, he's, he's evoking this idea that these people, these Thessalonians, they owe honor to God. God created them. He is over them. He has a moral standard. He expects their sanctification. He called them out. And he is infinitely honorable. He is, he is above anything else they've ever known. Any kind of honor they've ever had a category for. They, he, he's above all of that. And when he calls them to live this kind of way, and when he says, you need to present yourself honorably... He's, he's kind of saying that this is, this is an owed thing. 
And the thing about honor shame cultures is if you kind of play outside of those norms, outside of those expectations, then it is expected that you are bringing shame upon yourself. By if you, if you were to go up to someone who is due great honor and to dishonor them, then, then you have earned shame for yourself. And you are to be treated shamefully. And there's this idea at play inside of here that it's setting up this relationship between God and Christians. And he's saying, you need to conduct yourselves honorably because God has done this for you. He's done these amazing things. He has, he made you. He, he gave you his word to know what kind of life you ought to live. He sent Christ. And... He, he extended an, an arm to us in grace when we were nothing but shameful. Like he, he talk, Paul talks about this all over the place. We didn't deserve this salvation that we got, and yet he reaches down and calls us up. And, he, and, and this, is, this is an opportunity to respond faithfully and, and to give God the honor he's due and to receive glory and honor from him. And so it's setting up this kind of relationship here. When he comes back around and says, whoever disregards this, this command, is disregarding not man, but God. And he talks about the judgment that's due for somebody who would disregard this. This is a serious thing. And right there at the beginning, he's talking about how this isn't, Again, he says, this isn't something that I'm just telling you because I feel like our church needs to be like pristine and, and clean and well thought of. This isn't Paul, and he's already said this earlier in Thessalonians. This isn't Paul trying to give us his will for our lives. He says that this is truth from Jesus. Verse 3, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This isn't, this isn't a little thing. And when we talk about it here... It's not a little thing. When we have guys group every other Sunday and we talk about these issues, it's not, a, it's not just Tanner, me, Dale, somebody who's in charge here saying, hey, let me tell you, this is a good idea. Don't have lust in your heart. Don't, don't dwell on that. Don't act on that. Don't cultivate this kind of lustful desire, this attitude. That's not us saying that. That's truth that's coming from the Bible. And, and it's something that we ought to take very seriously and he says in verse 5 there he says let me it's, it's right in the middle of the sentence uh, conduct yourself in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the gentiles who don't know god the idea there is that this the way that you act in relation to this in some way indicates how close you are to god indicates your relationship with god He's saying that to act on these desires that are outside of the will of God is in a sense indicating that maybe you don't know God as well as you thought you did. As you might not be as close as you anticipated because he's, he's saying the people that run after those passions, they're, they're like worldly people who have no knowledge of God. He says that the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And so not only do we have this kind of this, this moral imperative, like this command to do this, 
But he's saying that we're going to be held to account for these things. And it's a very serious thing. And you, Again, you get this idea that Paul is thinking about how, how we're going to be presenting our lives in front of Christ. We talked about this last week. He was talking about how he's going to have to present himself in front of Christ to talk about the kind of work that he did inside of the church. And now he's telling them, listen, you're going to have to do the same thing. When you get in front of Christ, you're going to have to comment on your life. You're going to have to present everything that it is that you've done in your life. And he is going to repay evil for evil and good for good. And so he wants this to be present on their minds. And he wants us to know that we haven't been called out, verse 7, for impurity, but for holiness. In other words, Jesus didn't die so that you could run around looking at porn, having sex with whoever you want, and doing whatever you want with the will of God. Like throwing it away, neglecting it, just whatever. He says, Jesus didn't do all of that work. He didn't come down here and live that perfect life, offer himself up out of love for us, so that we could then claim his name and then soil it. Like somehow, he talks about in 1 Corinthians 6, the, the idea that, that for someone to join themselves to a prostitute is like trying to join the body of Christ to a prostitute. And it's like taking this thing, you take the name of Christ and you just throw it in the mud and, and God's not going to have that. It's the idea. He didn't call us for that kind of life. He didn't call us for impurity. He called us to, to come up out of that. And he's telling us that the will of God is our sanctification. The good news is that we're not alone in this. When you're so steeped in any kind of sin, it doesn't matter what kind of sin it is, when you're really steeped in any kind of sin or when you're struggling with it, it is difficult to know how to get out of it. Like when you hear stuff like this, you read the Bible and you say, that's great. I, I know that, I've, that I'm screwed up and that I have screwed up and I want to get out of this, but I don't know how. You're telling me it's wrong. I agree. It's wrong. But what am I supposed to do about it? I think that the hope in here is kind of right there at the end. Verse 8 when he says, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The only way that we are sanctified is by the Holy Spirit that's given to us. You can't work hard enough to become a perfect person. You can't become sanctified by waking up tomorrow morning and saying, now that I got a day off, I'm going to work on my sanctification. Like, it doesn't work out that way. This is something that the Holy Spirit does in us. It's something that we work with the Holy Spirit on. You can't just do it on your own. And so you get this kind of glimmer of hope when he says, you need to be held to this standard. You need to live up to this standard. You don't need to be living in impurity or immorality, but you need to be living in holiness. 
but you have the Holy Spirit in you. That, that is, is the affecting thing in our lives that's going to enable us to, to accomplish anything in Christ's name. The Holy Spirit's work in us, in the people that are called to, to live like Christ, called apart for Christ, the work that he does in our lives is to unite us to Christ, to, to make us more Christ-like. Like that is Christ's Spirit in us, works in us to, to teach us how to be more like Christ, to enable us to. Because even if you know how, it's still hard to actually do it. The Holy Spirit in us is what enables us to do this. And, and so when we hear this, when you, when you hear all the, the, the moral commands and the shame element of this, and the fact that, yes, this behavior, these thoughts, this lust that's in our hearts, it's shameful. When that weighs on you, don't think, I need to try really hard, and if I try my hardest, maybe I can get out of this sin. You didn't become a Christian that way, and you're not going to become more like Christ that way. You're going to, what this ought to do is, the Holy Spirit working through us ought to convict us of these things and to say, listen, this isn't the way God called us to live. He called us to be more than that, to do more than that. And so, what we ought to do, how we ought to respond is to cultivate that relationship, to, to invite the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of negative things said about rebuking the Holy Spirit, forsaking the Holy Spirit. What we ought to do is the opposite. We ought to, say, we ought to look at these verses and say, that is me. I am thinking dishonorable thoughts, acting on dishonorable thoughts. I'm struggling with this. We ought to turn to God then, turn to the Holy Spirit and say, I, I need help with this. I, I am a worldly person. I'm from, I'm, a, I'm like a product of this culture. In, my, in the way that I think about this, I, I, I struggle. I, I, I constantly am trying to stay away from a computer just so I don't go look at porn. I constantly am trying to not go down that street because I figure I'm going to go into the adult store if I do that. I need to stay away from these people because I know that that is a temptation. If you're struggling with stuff like this, then what, we have to lean on the Holy Spirit who has been provided to us because of what Christ did. Again, going back to that, when he says that God didn't call us for, for a sexually immoral life. We, you need to think of what God has done to say these sorts of things. When we were in our sin, when we were unlovable, when we were rebelling against God, doing whatever the heck we wanted to do, whenever we wanted to do it, God, at great cost to himself, reached out to us in love and said, I'm going to give them myself in a very literal kind of way. I'm going to give myself to them, these sinners, these people who have rebelled. I'm going to give them Christ and I'm going to offer him up as a sacrifice to atone, to 
to make up for all this sin. And I'm going to extend this to them, not because they earned it, not because they were trying real hard, but because I love them and because I, I want them to be my people. We need to think, when we see these kinds of verses, not just the, the moral commands and like, oh, you're just giving me a list of things to do. He's calling you to live a different kind of life out of love because he knows that his standard for sexuality and for everything else is good. Like when he made things, when he made sexuality, it was good. And it was unbroken. And so he's not saying, I don't want you to have any fun anymore. Like he's not trying to take away your desires. He's trying to do a course correction. And put them where they ought to be. And to say, this is how you ought to live. This is what's going to result in real flourishing. In real happiness. The kind of happiness that the world promises is ultimately a lie. And we know this because when we partake in it, it's not ultimately fulfilling. You keep going back to the same thing over and over and it's never enough. And, and it never satisfies permanently. And oftentimes it leads to broken hearts, broken relationships, problems. What God is saying when he says, don't be sexually immoral, he's not giving you a to-do list and saying, go do your chores. He's saying, I want to call you to a life that's better than that because these desires are broken. And I want to call you to a life that's good into a life that where you can... Use your sexuality. I gave it to you. I gave you the desires. You can use that. But do it within my design for it. In a way that's going to produce real happiness. Real joy. And realize that right here at the end. He's going to call us to account for these things. He's going to hold us accountable. So it is just. For God to look at our lives and to say, I offered Christ to you. You heard about it. You learned about it. You learned about the fact that you were in sin and that I had a different plan and that I wanted to send Christ for you to, to, to wash all your sin away and to do that out of love at no cost to yourself. I wanted to do that for you. And then if you forsake that, it only makes sense that God would say, you are under judgment. Because he's done everything that is necessary for us to respond to this in the way that we're supposed to. I don't want you to think about when you see stuff like this, when you hear about stuff like this. I don't want, again, I don't want you to just think about it as he's just giving me a list of things to do. Telling me how bad of a person I am and wanting me to go do this list of things. This is God's love towards us. That he has given us everything that's necessary to be restored in this broken world with these broken thoughts and broken hearts and broken desires. He's saying... 
I'm giving you Christ. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. I'm giving you grace and love. And all you have to do is reach out and, and, and take it. So a lot more can be said about this. A lot more. So if this is something that you're struggling with, um, then pray. Pray about this. Pray that the Holy Spirit would enable you to see the love of God and the grace of God and all that he's done for you and to value that and pray that the Holy Spirit would would enable you to act on that rather than on your desires rather than on sinful desires sorry pray during this time and and utilize the church for this you know People think that they're alone when they're dealing with these sorts of things. That's not at all the case. You notice that this is Paul talking to a a church body. So the fact that we even have this in the Bible here, this this is an instance where a leader is talking to a church and saying, I want to help you with this. I want to let you know what the truth is on this matter. And he's reaching out to them and saying, "We essentially, we as a church need to watch each other on this. So if this is something that you struggle with, then this is part of the reason why we have a church here. Like, the reason that we meet with the guys and talk about this specific issue is because we know it's something that people struggle with, and we want to help each other. And I want you guys to know that it's not just you by yourself dealing with your own sin. Our church exists here to try to get past these things, to try to, to, try to work these things out in our lives, because it's difficult, and it's not meant for you to do it alone, okay? So, during this response time, let's pray about this. And if you need to, talk to somebody about it. You can talk to me, Tanner, Dale. You can come to the guys group. It's going to be later today if you want to talk about this or if you want to have people pray for you, you want to discuss some things, specifics about things that you're struggling with. Come to CG, let us know. The only way that we're going to be able to edify each other and build each other up in in regard to these sorts of things is if we actually live like the church and, and don't just sit on our sins and hide them in our closets and hope that nobody notices. Like, that's exactly what he's telling us not to do. Don't sit there and act like this is something that you can just kind of ignore. It's something that needs to be addressed. So that's why we're here. So during this response time, let's respond. Okay? Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us when when we were unlovable and and just throwing fits against your will. Thank you for loving me when when I'm struggling with this. I pray that Your love would be real to us. We need more than the knowledge of what to do. Because we're so broken. 
We need more than that. We need you to come into our lives, to come into our hearts, to teach us what it is we're supposed to do, to enable us to even be able to do it. Because our sinfulness has just totally wrecked us. And we have such backwards ideas about what we can get away with, what we can do, what we ought to do. And we need, we need your help desperately. And you've sent it to us in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would, you would come into our hearts and minds, lives, bodies. And that you would change us and cause us to live totally unlike anything we've ever known. Unlike this culture, unlike the world around us, and and just more and more like Christ. Cause the story of this church to be one of repentance. And not stagnation just sitting there not doing anything and nodding their heads but not affected at all I pray that you would change us and in Jesus name Amen